Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, May the 9th, 2019, uh, and this is episode 2,435 of the Survival Podcast. That's right, 2,435, 2435 times. We've gotten together on the Survival Podcast and uh, discussed things. It's a Thursday, and I am beginning my kind of new rotation. Instead of doing a listener call show today, we'll do a, a standalone Just Jack show, and then next week we'll do a listener call show. That'll let me be a little bit more puritanical on selecting the calls and, and what have you. Uh, the call volume is has never been as high as the email volume. The email volume is insane. Call volume is pretty moderate, and lately it's actually been a little bit light. And that was one reason I made this decision to go to these Just Jack shows like this. The other reason is there is something about the early years of TSP where every show was a Just Jack show. And I want to try to bring a little bit of that back around. Also, we're bringing in new segments and things like that. And we're keeping with Thursday and Friday being commercial-free as far as sponsors. So we're running sponsor segments three days a week uh, just to keep things you know different and having something different to look forward to on a daily basis. So what are we what are we going to talk about today? I am going into part five of the Design Science of Permaculture series that I have been doing this year. I guess it's a few weeks, six weeks ago ish, that I realized like we hadn't dived deep into permaculture. We talked about little pieces of it when we would talk about homesteading or gardening or whatever, or in business we would talk about the principles of design and business. And I decided, like, it was time, like, that was another thing that was, you know, early on in the show, 10 years ago, 9 years ago, etc. We did a lot more with permaculture. And there's a big reason for it. If you want to live a self-sufficient, self-reliant lifestyle, then you need to provide as much for yourself as you possibly can. Your own needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, etc. And food being the number, now, again, permaculture, we can use this to, to deal with lots of things. Permaculture design principles can help us to, for instance, make a property very resistant to forest fires, just as one example. Uh, permaculture design principles can help us to provide uh, off-grid water for drinking, bathing, etc. So there's tons we can do beyond feeding ourselves, but we're going to focus mostly on feeding ourselves today, and it is the place that most people start with permaculture. There's a belief that's out there, I hear people say it all the time, that permaculture came from the concepts of permanent agriculture. And, and that's just not the case. Uh, David Holgram and the late uh, co-founder of permaculture, Bill Mollison, who's kind of the guy that did all the horsepower and horsework to get the movement started in the 70s and 80s, um, never intended for people to take this as permanent agriculture. It was permanent culture. It was about creating permanence for humanity on Earth and doing that through protecting natural systems and realizing that we ourselves were part of the natural system. That we are not separate from nature, as most people would believe. We think today that the way we should be doing things uh, to protect nature is to separate man from the wilderness, to set aside places where people don't go. And people don't do anything if they do go there except walk through, leave nothing but footprints, etc. But when we look at the indigenous societies that permaculture was based on, when settlers first came here to North America from Europe, 
there were a lot of places where there was significant amounts of horticulture going on. We would call it agriculture, but it's really not the right term for it. And it's why they didn't recognize it. There's an old saying that a squirrel could have gone from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River without coming down from a tree. So we think of the forested places in North America as being like jungle, but they weren't. There were paths, and you could walk through them. It was very park-like. And what we had was horticultural systems being used by Native Americans that we didn't recognize because we thought, like agriculturists, and I've talked about this before, agriculture is not the culture of plants. It is not the culture of grain. It is not the culture of food. Agriculture, the word itself means the culture of fields. Creating fields where there was once forest rather than creating forest where there was once fields. So we didn't even understand what we were looking at when we first got here. As I say we, I mean Europeans. The Europeans got here and they looked around and they thought this was just like wilderness and jungle and that these people were living in it. And they were just, you know, like, oh yeah, there's resources here, but that just, they didn't understand that the native people, especially the eastern United States, because there was far more of an agricultural-like component to western tribes, mainly because of where they lived and how they had to do things to survive. And certainly in the Central and South American tribes, the Incas, the Aztecs, etc., those, those people were largely agricultural as well. But the eastern United States specifically was highly horticultural. They didn't understand that these people had been burnt, doing controlled burns before they knew what the hell that was. Burning to the Europeans was to basically get rid of everything where the natives were burning out the understory here because they knew it would cause fresh regrowth. They were selecting certain plants and certain plant types and then cultivating them. But they were cultivating them in and around where they lived and living largely off the game as well. And they, were, they would consciously look and say, hey, you know, if we take all of this, then the deer will leave, and then we won't have the deer. We take all this, the elk will leave, and we won't have the elk. So they understood setting limitations to population and consumption, which is why that third ethic, that third ethic, which is also described as return of surplus, exists. Because every indigenous society did that. And when we, when we take that into consideration and understanding, we understand that we, in fact, are part of nature. We are part of the wilderness. We are a native component to the natural ecosystems of the planet. Now, due to our great big brains, we have the capacity to put things out of balance, to create deserts where there were once forests, to create deserts where there were once prairies. And so because of that, as we begin to understand the damage that humanity has done, in, in its wake, creating deserts, the concept of desertification. We have decided that it must be that man is bad for nature. And that the only thing we can do is take man away from nature so nature can fix it. Well, there's places where we flat out screwed it up bad enough that it can't fix itself. Certainly not within the lifetime of any human or maybe even six or seven generations of us. There are places where nature cannot repair the damage that we did. But we can turn deserts into prairies. We can turn fallow fields into prairies. I visited with a gentleman a few years ago during a deer hunting trip 
who was in Missouri. And he was at the very northern part of Missouri, like right on the Iowa border. I guess that's, that's where it was. And he bought this farm where he was literally mocked. He was mocked for buying this farm by the people that live there. In fact, when he went down to the property office to do some things with the paperwork when he first bought the property, the lady at the window said, oh, you're that fool that bought that worn-out farm. This had been so abused, so abused. And he doesn't know the word He does now. But when he started, he didn't know the word permaculture. This guy was a, a nuclear engineer from the Navy who decided to grow his own food because his wife was sick and they wanted to help her get well. And he came up with a way to grow row crops like corn, but he was also growing this in strips. You had corn, and then you had something like a legume plot, and then another row of corn, not a row, about 18 feet. Whatever it was, it was two passes with his tractor to cut the in-between rows. And then each year, the corn would switch to the ones that had previously grown, and he just kept doing that. And 10 years into it, he sent soil off to be sampled, and he heard back from the, the state agricultural office, said, you're going to get in trouble. He said, why the hell would I get in trouble? They said, you, you can't plow native prairie. Because they have, they have now, like if there is a piece of native prairie left, they have it protected. You can't plow that. You have to leave that alone, even if you own it. And he said, this isn't native prairie. This is the land I'm growing corn and beans and, and, and cover crops and clovers on right now. They almost didn't believe him. So humans can change what has been destroyed back into highly productive systems for man and animal alike. And we can do that by thinking, again, horticulturally instead of agriculturally. The culture we need to be doing is plants. If we, if we are culturing plants, we have to build soil. If we're building soil and culturing plants, we are providing for animals as well. And we create a system that is very, very resilient. And as we look at this today, I want you to realize that what we're actually doing when we dig into these permaculture series, that I, I, will, I don't know how long I'm going to take this series out now. It may be a 12-part series. I'm not sure. We're really going back to the earliest roots of TSP before I truly understood permaculture. When I first heard the word and heard the basic concept of it, I thought that only difference between permaculture and agriculture, for instance, because I didn't get any of the things I just explained to you. Plant a tree instead of corn. Permaculture was planting perennials. I had no idea what, what I was actually looking at when I first saw permaculture. Until I caught a hold of Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert and really understood the systemic level of design that was being done, I went, oh, it was like a light bulb. It was a light bulb moment. But what I was teaching at TSP long before I understood that was the concept of going from home to homestead. In fact, that spawned a guy named Johnny Max, who's a microbrewer, and his wife that they gave the nickname to, the Queen. They had a podcast for a while. The entire theme of their podcast was from home to homestead. And that came out of our early, early days. I'm talking 2008. That's what we're going back to with permaculture. And to, to understand that, what I meant when I came up with that concept back then is that for most people that live in the, the modern world today, their home is their single largest liability. It's an expense. It costs them money. And if the income faucet shuts off, all they end up with is something the bank will take away from them. 
and that their home really is nothing but a shell that provides them environmental comfort and a place to keep their stuff. They live most of their life at the office or in a mobile metal coffin going back and forth we call a car. And they pay for every single thing that their home provides on an ongoing basis. You flip a light switch, you're paying for your electricity. right? You turn on the faucet, you pay for your water. But what we don't understand in this country is how lucky we are, how, how easily available land is. Because even with, and we're going to be focused today really on small properties or zone one, either one. That with the way things work in America, you buy a house and you've got a little piece of land. And it might be 60 by 120 feet. You know, it might be an eighth or a tenth or even a twentieth of an acre. But compared to a lot of places in the world, that's a massive piece of land that you own, that you control, that you can grow things on. And because of that, if we think like the early settlers who came here for a better life, and the number one reason people came to this country was the ability to own land. At the time this country was being settled in a lot of the world, you couldn't even own land as a peasant anymore. You had access to what they called the commons, and otherwise you really couldn't own land. You, you farmed, you lived on the land of a noble. And the fact that you could come here and maybe even slave for a year or two in one of the cities and then just go out and have a place of your own was enough to risk everything for. It's not the only reason. It was the number one driver that brought people to the new world was that ability. I could have a piece of my own. And if we bring that back, we could take our homes and turn them into homesteads. Instead of everything being about our inputs... The homestead itself starts to have certain outputs, can feed us, you know? And if we think that way, then permaculture is where we have to go. It's the only destination we can head to. We might call it something else. If you don't like the word, you could say, I do natural growing around my house. That's fine. But permaculture, again, is not just a system of techniques, It is a design science, the way the techniques are assembled and the principles that drive them. So that's what we're on today. We're on to talking about small properties and or zone one design. So I'm coming at this 100% today from the person that lives in the average sized suburban lot. If you have, like me, three acres on a mid-sized property or five or ten or a hundred, this applies equally to you. Because in permaculture, we design in zones. And we've talked about that in an earlier uh, component to this series. And the entire series is available at the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, and there's a tag under each one that says permaculture series or perm series 19. You click that, it'll bring up every one we did. And every episode links to it as well. It says you can find the entire design series here and the individual parts. So if you need any help with some of the terminology we're using today because you haven't listened or you need to re-listen, you can go back and do that. But with zones, we're looking at frequency of time in a place. How often are we there? And a zone one on a larger property pretty much is an area that just naturally by your existence you're going to step foot on or at least be able to see every single day that you're on your property. So it's not a very big piece of property, and it might be kind of windy and go off in little peninsulas and all. But when you're on a property that's you know 60 by 120, a pretty standard lot size today, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that they're that small, 90 by 100 is another common size, something like that, you pretty much treat the whole thing as zone one. 
You might have a little spot you call zone two with a cor out in the corner where you keep your firewood because you live in the south like I do and you only use firewood one, one or two months out of the year or something like that. But in the end, it's really all zone one. So whether you have that small property today, then it's all for you. And if you have a larger property, let's just think about you walk out your back door, you walk out your front door, and you look around, and you want the majority of the things that you personally need on a daily basis produced for yourself or the ability to manage those things close to you where they're easy. When you need some fresh dill and fresh chevrol and some fresh thyme for your soup that you're cooking, that you can pop out the door and not go that far and get it so that you will. So that you'll do it. All right? And so that you'll see those weeds and pull them, etc. That's zone one. Let's talk about advantages of the small properties in general. Is number one, and I, I cannot overstate how, how big of an advantage this is. You can mulch and irrigate everything. I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying that it is doable. On, on a, a relatively modest budget, if you're a good scavenger, just scavenging leaves from neighbors and stuff like that, you can mulch every square inch of a 60 by 120 foot property. And you can put in irrigation to every single piece of that property you want, and you can do all that and not put yourself in the poorhouse. And once you've done that, you can pretty much grow anything you want. Now, you might have to say, well, this spot's shady, so I need to do this, or this part's sunny, so that, that plant won't go there. But in the end, you can get anything that will grow in your zone, you know, your, your climate to grow. Other factors included, you know, shade, sun, etc. And your soil will become incredibly healthy. Contrast that with something like I have. I have three acres of land. What would it cost me to put... Two inches of wood mulch on every square inch of three acres. And I don't know the answer because I'm not even doing the math. Because it doesn't matter. I'm not going to do it. I can't afford to do that. I have to use other ways to build soil. You can move so quickly with mulching and chop and drop. And just taking every single thing. If you grow it and you don't eat it or your animals don't eat it, It should go back in some way, whether it's through composting or just putting it on the ground to your soil. And when we get to the principles portion of today's show, you're going to see how important that really is. On that note, by doing that, you can build the most productive soil in the world. If the guy I told you about at the beginning of the show using a plow on denuded soil farming 18 acres of his farm, that's the 18 acres he, he, he set down and said, I'm going to do this here. This is how it's going to work. If he can do that there, what can you do on a postage stamp or a little bit larger, maybe a corner lot or cul-de-sac lot in the suburbs? You can do far more, far faster. And soils everything in these systems. There's a saying, I don't remember who said it, but it was that we owe all life on earth to the fact that we have topsoil and it rains. Or something like six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. It's something like that, paraphrasing the quote. And it's true. Water and soil are life. We often say water is life, but you cannot separate the two. Take away all the soil, you can have all the water you want, all you got is an ocean. Right? And life as we know it anyway, life as we'd like to live it anyway, cannot exist like that. Remember the old show Water, water World with uh, Kevin Costner, the old movie from the 80s? wasn't exactly a pleasant existence, and I don't even know if it was realistic existence. The next thing is, 
And this is a huge advantage. People always see their limitations and never see the advantages that comes with, comes with them. By having a small property, whether you force yourself to design everything into this area, you're going to call zone one, or you know those fences represent neighbors, and that's it. That's all you got. It forces you to think about every decision. And hence, we make smarter decisions. And the way I've explained this before is if I give you a bunch of furniture and say, make a living room, it's difficult. But as soon as I put walls around it, doorways and windows, well, the couch goes here, the TV goes, you see it starts to get real easy how to lay this out. I don't want to block that door. That leads into the master bedroom, so that needs to be left open. You know, you, you can easily make decisions within the bounds of those limitations. So when you have small properties or you're doing zone one design, you think deeply like, okay, there's a wall there. That wall faces west. That wall is going to be cold in, in the winter, and it's going to be very, very hot in the summer, in the afternoons. It's going to literally bake. What do I do with it? That's a south-facing wall. That south-facing wall is going to be really warm comparatively in the winter than other locations on the property. Maybe I can expel a tree up against that wall, and that residual heat will make something that's marginal for my climate productive for my climate. You'll think that way. If I put that thing there, I can't put anything else there, so that thing better do something good in making it as generic as possible. And that's why when you have small properties you're designing, you should realize the advantages are the limitations. And if you design a system on a small property and you think that way, the next advantage is your system ends up being very easy to maintain. It's, it's not complicated, and you just don't get in over your head. Even me, when I first got here, I got in over my head. I got so excited to finally have flat land. Put in swales and plant trees, and other, you know, and, and, and getting ahead of things like, well, are you going to be able to irrigate that in your, your miserable summers? And I'm glad I did it. Don't get me wrong, because I learned so much over the last six years here. I, I, I incredibly learned a lot of things. And we've had some incredible successes. But in the end, what I've come back to over the last few years is focusing on the Zone 1 components. And my Zone one's pretty big, because I have the luxury of having it be that way. But... Honestly, it's big because I have a great big leach field for my septic in my backyard, and i got to leave that open. Or most of it would be right there. I kind of had to wonky it off out to the side to deal with that design restriction. Odds are, if you're in suburbs on a small property, you don't have that restriction. So you end up with this easy-to-maintain system. And one of the reasons it's easy to maintain is you know where everything is because you put it there. So you're able to make decisions about changing things with full knowledge of the way things went. It's not just a giant swath of land. Here's the truth, though, and this is so important before we get into systems and techniques that we're going to talk about, and specifically how they apply to suburban and urban design. The truth is, you already know how to do all of this. You just need to give yourself permission to act. As I started out with, human beings are horticultural. You know as much how to put in a garden as an ant knows how to build an anthill. It is hardwired into your brain. That's why the person who doesn't know jack shit about gardening, when you bring them to a place where you have, you've, you've worked a garden bed for a while, 
And all the soil around you is kind of like grayish, denuded-looking, tired shit. And you pull the mulch back from your garden, and you stick your hand into it up to your wrist, and you bring a handful of it up, and you show it to them. They go, oh. Now, why are they doing that? They don't know anything about gardening. How do they know? How do they know that's good? Because it's dark and loamy and moist. How do they know that? Because it's, we know it. We know it the way we know how to walk. You might have to learn to do it as a baby. But you don't have children, unless there's a physical impairment, that don't start pulling themselves up, fall down a few times, and eventually end up learning to walk and run. It's innate. It's innate behavior that we walk. It's innate behavior that we crawl before we walk. It's innate behavior that we run. It's innate behavior that we seek to bond with other human beings. These are all innate human characteristics, and everything you need to know is inside of you. All of these techniques, all of these strategies, all of these tactics are just simply ways to spur your existing natural innate knowledge so that you can assemble them in a way that works best for you. That's what makes it a science, right? Because ants building that, that, that hill... That's not a science. It's pure biological behavior based on evolution. The, the thing that separates us from an ant or a mole or a rat or a rabbit or a deer is that we have the ability to back off of those innate behaviors and decide on how exactly we assemble them based on where we're living, how long we're going to be living there, where we want to go next, what we do and don't like to eat. You know, if, if, if a deer lives somewhere where the primary feed in the springtime is a certain kind of browse, and it doesn't really care for that, guess what? It's going to figure out how to, to care for it. It's going to get hungry enough, and it's going to eat it. It's not like the deer are not picky eaters. Like, the doe isn't walking around with two young fawns, and the one's like, well, I don't want to eat my browse today. It doesn't work that way. We can decide, I really don't like kale, so I'm going to grow chard, just as a, a base example. We can make those changes, but the innate behavior and the innate knowledge is there. We just need to tap into it. Think about that as we go into these systems and techniques I'm going to talk about for urban design today. We're going to start off one that is probably the more complicated and requires acquiring more knowledge to make it work, and that's aquaponics. I wanted to put this in here, and I, I don't think everybody should do aquaponics. I think that everybody that wants to do reasonable amount of food production from their home, that wants to take the path from home to homestead, and wants to take a permaculture approach to it, should consider aquaponics. And I, I think, honestly, there isn't anything that I would say everybody should do. There's probably some things that everybody's going to end up doing. But I don't think we should ever come at this from a standpoint of you have to have this or you have to have that. I think you evaluate, if you're going to do this scientifically, you evaluate your system, your, your situation, your budget, your time constraints. You take all of the techniques and you look at, you know, all the stuff we've talked about already, your solar aspect, 
You got to understand like your solar aspect, your limitations. Like if you can't have chickens, you can't have chickens because the government says so or because your neighbors are paying the ass. Whatever it is, okay, then that's off the table. All right? You you're not going to grow lemons in Pennsylvania unless you put them on a dolly and bring them in the house. We're not going to plant lemons in the ground in Pennsylvania. We're not Sepp Holzer. You know, and I think it's just a theatrical trick anyway. It's designed to be like, "Ooh, oh, you you got to have a lemon orchard." Right? He's not selling lemons. So you're going to have some restrictions. And we, if we accept that, we scientifically design and we socially design for our neighbors and ourselves. I do feel that it sucks that some neighbors can pick up the phone and use the force of the state to stop you from doing something. But in the end, you move to a neighborhood, you got somebody living next to you, you should try to at least get along. An example, I planted white mulberries on my eastern property boundary. Because I have a relatively close neighbor, and I knew if it was me, I wouldn't want birds eating a bunch of uh, black and red mulberries and crapping all over my stuff. So I did that as a social consideration. But we should also socially consider for ourselves. So if you hate something, if you just don't like fiddling around with pipes and plumbing and water, or you're off-grid and it's not worth the money to try to run a pump, Uh, how many solar panels you'd need and such, then then you wouldn't do aquaponics, or you'd have to find some sort of natural aquatic system to replace it. So this applies to that applies to everything. I just wanted to kind of clear the air with that as we go into this. This is why I think you should consider aquaponics, though. Just one tank and one ebb and flow bed opens up so many possibilities for you, and it is really easy to do. And it doesn't have to be big and fiddly if you're going to do it that simple. You know, one. One tank and two ebb and flow beds. And you can go look at the shows I've done on aquaponics to learn how to do all this. But here's why. Number one, it allows you by heating the water to extend your seasons by doing that alone. And a relatively small system, that's easy to do. And it's not a lot of energy and expense to do it. Number two, you can propagate with aquaponics. When I want to make another tomato plant, I cut a sucker off one of my existing tomato plants, I stick it in ebb and flow bed. And I know there's other ways to clone tomatoes. But if you saw what the roots look like five days later, you'd understand what I'm talking about. Next, you can regrow food with aquaponics. You can absolutely take food that even you bought from the grocery store. I do it with, I do it with, uh, with beets. I'll buy baby beets, throw them in the ebb and flow bed, cut greens off them for two or three months, and then pick big beets. So I get twice as much beet and all of the green yield in between by doing by buying living beets from the store, organic ones. We we throw celery hearts in. We cut we if we if we cut green onions, we take the tips and stick them back in and they regrow. So you can regrow food. You can you can propagate things from seed and the growth rate is exceptional and there is meat in the form of fish as a byproduct in it for you. So I think that it's something that should be considered I think it can be really beautiful or it can be really redneck engineer looking. It depends on what you want out of it. And it could be a big system or a small system. But I don't know anything after all these years of growing. I've grown food just about every way there is to do it. From the time I was, you know, when my, when my age had one digit, I was growing food in gardens. And I don't know anything on a per square foot basis that can touch the productivity of aquaponics. So that's one system I would look at. The closest thing to it, and it can be part of it, is wicking beds. 
I put out some pictures on Facebook today. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you look at what my wicking beds are doing in their third year, it's, it's hard to even accept for me. Like, as good as it's been for the last two years, this third year of these beds, I don't even understand it myself. I do understand it's about building soil in them. But it's also about the fact that everything's always perfect. So I think you should take a look at where can we put wicking beds in. I'm going to say right now, in my list here, I don't have growing a plain old in-the-ground garden. Yes, you should do that, especially if it works. I, I just think that's such an obvious thing. But we can do things with wicking beds that look like more conventional garden beds. You can take a 4 by 8 raised bed garden and dig you know, 18 inches down, throw a pond liner in it, set it to drain at a certain height, a little French drain pipe coming out of, let's say, 6 inches, so the bottom 6 inches is water, throw some coiled, coiled uh, French drain pipe in it to create some space, throw some lava rock on top of it, throw down a couple layers of weed blocker, throw in a thin layer of sand to help wick, wick things up, Throw your soil mix on top of it, and you just have a raised bed garden that's a wicking bed. You can do that, too. There's a million ways to do wicking beds. Rain gutter bucket systems are wicking beds. Self-watering containers are wicking beds. If you take a big old six-inch piece of pipe, take a hole saw, drill a bunch of holes in it like you're making an aquaponic system, but don't make an aquaponic system. Find some pots that sit in there so that just the bottom of the pot into that hole is about halfway down that six inch pipe. Throw some strips of, of landscape fabric into your pots and grow in pots and just fill that pipe up once a week. That's, say it with me class, a wicking bed. Anything where we take moisture below the system and let it wick up is a wicking bed. And the reason this is so powerful is it reduces your water requirements better than any other thing. The number two thing for reducing water requirements would be um, a drip irrigation system. Very good, too. And I think if you're not doing a wicking bed, and you can, you should be irrigating with drip. Not everybody can. There are certain limitations there we won't get into today, but drip would be my number two for irrigation. But wicking works. And it's also very good for the close-in systems. If you start thinking, I'm trying to get you to think about how you might design a property today. And let it not be your property. That's something I always try to teach people. When you're trying to design, imagine that. You go to your friend's house. It's a blank slate backyard. You walk out his back porch. Where, where might you have access where it's easy going to be easy to top it off with water for that aquaponic system or wicking bed? There's some electricity available. All right, I know. We want to all be off-grid. We're not. So let's use the, the cheap power that's right there. Let's go ahead and use it. You're using it to keep your food cold in your refrigerator. You're using it to run your TV and watch TV at night. Use it to grow some food. The, the, the payback is there. Trust me. So where might that wicking bed go or those wicking beds go or those self-watering containers that are wicking beds? Where might they go? How might we be able to do that? Uh, go listen to the container gardening show I did not that long ago. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so that you know you can start to understand how all these things go together because I want to talk more about the things themselves than how to do them today. And, and that alone, just a, a small aquaponic system and or a group of wicking beds kind of out on the patio, at the edge, out the front door, whatever. And then we throw in some in-ground stuff with some drip irrigation or some other form of irrigation, lots of mulch. Maybe we just go out and hand water it to get started, whatever. A little herb garden out the front or what have you. 
you, you all of a sudden you have a significant amount of production without a lot of work. Now, I do want to explain something about techniques like aquaponics and wicking beds and automating irrigation and stuff like that. All of it is more work than a basic garden in the beginning. A basic garden, I go out, I dig a row up, I put seeds in it, maybe I mulch it, I water it, and it grows. I weed it a little bit until my plants get up high enough that the weeds aren't that big of a concern for this year, and I have done it. If I'm building big wicking beds, I'm hauling soil around, I'm lifting stuff up, I gotta get rock, I gotta get some sort of a pipe for a false bottom, I'm using tools, power tools, I've gotta have it elevated in some way, or I've gotta make accommodations for drain away if I'm doing it in the ground. It's all more work. If I'm doing drip irrigation, I'm running lines, I'm putting in a filter, I'm hooking that up to rain catcher, to city water or whatever. It's all, it's all more work than just putting the seeds in the ground. Except, it's only more work in the beginning, and it's less work forever. My my wicking beds, and I, like I said, I, I put those pictures out today on Facebook. I do almost nothing. I, I What I said today when I put the pictures out is that I have so much stupid food right now, it might eat me before I eat it. I, I, I can't keep up with it, and it's only, you know, nine, nine beds in there, 10, 11 beds in there. Four of them were just planted. They're not even really in production yet. It's, it's, it's massively insane. Once we get that down, and I'm not saying to do it first. I'm saying, like, this is how to think about this. Let's, let's think about how we're designing. So we've, we've walked out the porch. Where can we put container gardens? Where can we put wicking beds? Maybe we're doing aquaponics, whatever. Just where is this, where's the easy places? A couple in-ground beds, things like that. Where's the easy stuff that's obvious to us? Now let's start thinking about our pathway through the property. Where, how are we going to get, like, oh, it's just a square. I can get there any way I want. Yeah, but, but you want to create flows. So how are you going to get to that back corner and that back corner and that little shed that you have over there? Uh, or any other features. If you have a swimming pool, there's probably a way that you enter that. What are the paths, the natural pathways? And with that, we start to think about micro-earthworks. If we have significant slope on the property, we want to design our paths fully on contour. We want to break out an A-frame level or a laser level and find that level path through the property wherever we can. Most of our properties in these types of properties we're talking about today, they're going to be pretty flat. So we can even do earthworks without doing earthworks, if that makes sense. If we design a path through the property and we actually take dirt out of the path, That's all we do is take the dirt out of the path, and now we have dirt that we can move somewhere else to, to build up a garden bed or to put in a mini orchard or whatever we want to do. And we fill that path with something like pea gravel. If that's all we do, when it rains, that water is going to weep from that path into the landscape. If we put it on contour, it's going to accumulate water and weep it into the downward side of that landscape. That's, that's one type of micro-earthworks. But we can move water. Because the next, so I'm going to, I'm going to use micro earthworks throughout this as a teaching tool. That's why I wanted to put it here at this point. If we have an aquaponics system, for instance, and when it rains, we know it's going to overflow, then we can put in a swale, just a little bitty one, like something your, your kid could put in. 
so that when the aquaponic system overflows, it overflows in that soil, it moves that water and that nutrient loss. So now we've lost that nutrient. We worked hard to build it up in the aquaponic system. It flows down through there. We're talking about other ways we could do that. Because the next thing we're going to talk about is water catchment. I think it makes a lot of sense to have water on your property one way or another and not just rely on that water that comes out of that pipe or that faucet. And there's a lot of ways to do this, but probably the best bang for the buck is IBCs because you can get IBCs really cheap. However, there is something to be said for the large, purposefully built polytanks. And something on the neighborhood of 1,500 gallons is not ridiculously tall. It's pretty easy to plumb one into a rain gutter system. I have two of them on one of my outbuildings. Uh, that's a lot more water than people realize. And in a lot of climates, if you're using that water, it's a pretty good amount to have as a, a charge and recharge rate. And that then is going to get to a point sometimes where it's going to overflow. So now we can move in again. We start thinking about our micro-earthworks. When this tank is full, and I've got another inch of rain coming, and it's going to overflow at that top point, and it's going to cascade down that tank, where's it going to go? Where's it going to end up? Well, I get to decide that. I can do that with very, very minor earthworks. We put in some swales between my two outbuildings and what I would consider my zone one area that's growing a small foon forest right now. And when we put them in, it was very obvious what they were. Right now, the only way it's obvious is because we planted trees into the berms. When you walk through there, they don't even really look like paths anymore. You almost don't see them until it rains, and then you see them holding water. You see them discharging from their sills. So thinking about what you know from Earthworks from prior episodes, we can bring that stuff right down to very small levels. We can have pathways with drains that flow underneath them. We, we're going to want to think about water catchment. The other thing I, I really want you to think about, especially if you're not going to do aquaponics, even if you are, but especially if you're not, garden ponds. And in fact, I think for a lot of people, garden ponds might be a better choice than aquaponics. They're easier. They're less work. Uh, they can be very, very inexpensive. They can be done with prefabricated ponds where you just buy the you know, 250, 300-gallon plastic shell that's shaped like a pond and you put it in the ground. You can do it with pond liners. That's probably the least expensive way to do it. They can be done with you know, bentonite clay, which is the most natural-looking way to do it. They can be done a little bit more formally using concrete blocks, forms, etc., and liners or some sort of epoxy sealant. Uh, they can be done the way I do them with with timber frames, and I want you to realize like not everybody needs to go put in a three thousand gallon pond. You could go out and use landscaping timbers and pond liner, and if you know most people can dig a two foot hole without much problem. If you dug a two foot four by eight like you're digging a garden, and then put in landscape timbers to come up, let's say one foot above grade, you'd have, I mean, it would look like a one-foot-high raised garden bed, but it'd be three foot of water. And by doing some things to let frogs and stuff in and out, I mean, you've got a whole little ecosystem you just created, and the, the cost of doing that's about $400, maybe $300, depending on exactly what you do. You're going to need a pump. You have to have power there. If you're going to be putting in irrigation anyway, just run. When you run irrigation, realize how cheap PVC pipe is. And take and put yourself like a piece of one inch PVC pipe next to whatever your irrigation pipe is. 
put a pull string in it. And if you ever want to run power out there, just go dig it up. Spray paint the one that is the, the one for power. Cut it open and use the pull string and yank a line in and put power there. If you're digging that ditch, put everything in that ditch you could ever want in that ditch when you dig that ditch. Pipe is cheap, especially on the scale we're talking about. So garden ponds. And let me tell you how powerful garden ponds are. If you, especially if you do other things. I had a friend. These people were not permaculturists. They were not trying to grow any food. They put in a water garden because they thought it was pretty. They had a really beautiful house. This guy was a regional uh, VP for Mattel Toys. So they had some money. And they were very good friends of our family. We'd go over and hang out with them once in a while. They had a backyard in-ground pool, typical that you see in the suburbs here in Texas. Um, you know, the whole pool deck is that kind of looks like, looks like concrete with pebbles in it type thing going on. Burns the hell out of your feet. They had almost no soil in, in the landscape. They had a, a, a back fence. They had about six, eight feet off of that fence. A retaining wall built up because there was an elevation change there. And that whole thing was just planted with these bushes they call red tips down here, just purely ornamental. And they had a little pocket over to one side, like up at the deep end of the pool, on the other fence with the other neighborhood. And, and it's kind of that kind of sloped up. So they put a pond up there, and it would be in the neighborhood of like 200 gallons. And then they put in, it was really pretty, like a waterfall, fake waterfall coming down off the elevation change. And then a pond at the bottom, it was in the neighborhood of like a 110-gallon uh, prefab. So this is all prefab with a piece of liner making the connection. They put a pump in the bottom, buried a thing, went up to the top, and a typical... Kind of yuppie-ish, if you want to think about it that way. You know, landscape feature. And then someone gave this dude, whose name was Byron, a toad house, which is just basically an upside-down uh, clay flower pot with, with like a frog on it and some decorations. And he thought it was kind of cool. So he sticks this thing out there by the pond. Next thing you know, there's toads hopping around, laying tadpoles in the pond. And this becomes a thing. So everybody starts getting this family frog houses. So they, because it's like, you know, people like that, they have what they want. So when it's something like that, it's easy. If you're going to get them a gift, that's what you get them. And they started collecting them. And then he started realizing, I can just break a hole in the bottom of a pot. So all of a sudden they had frog houses, toad houses, all over the damn property. And again, though, it's like up under the red tips. It's over by the pond. They had them in the front yard. Little, the front yard was a yard, and they had it, you know, lollipop tree in the front, rocks surrounding this, a couple boulders here. They put these things everywhere. Two years later, no more frog houses. Why not? We can't sleep. What? We can't sleep. The, the, again, this is the middle of the suburbs. There ain't another thing like it for miles. There were so many toads that at night they make that kind of chirp that they couldn't sleep anymore. Now, I want you to think about this. If you did that, how many insect problems do you think you'd have in a situation like that? So garden ponds are awesome and, 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 and good for something we're going to talk about toward the end here, a wildlife habitat creation. I want to throw that in there for you, though. Um, Also looking at small spaces. We had a guy recently that was on, was talking about spindle apple systems. I've reached out to the guys out of UMass. He is the foremost expert on this method of growing apples in the country. Um, and we had a guest on about Aircrete, and he kind of threw that out there, how much you can do with, with, with spindle apples. 
Now, spindle apples are grown on trees that are designed to be kind of normal apple trees. They grow them about 10 foot tall, and they cut them and prune them and train them in a certain way. And you do want them to grow tall fast and then control that point if you're doing it commercially anyway. And this guy says at a 10 to 11 foot level. And your side branches that come out, you don't want them to scaffold. You basically tie them down so they grow down and prune them off so they don't get too long. And you're planting trees at about three feet apart when you do this. And if you're doing rows, the rows are about 11 to 12 feet apart. It's a variant. It's almost growing apple trees as if they were grapevines in a way. And you can do even higher density in backyards. And you can do that. And they say to do that with a dwarfing rootstock, which is different than what I've always said. I've always said if you want a small apple tree, get a full-size rootstock or a, a semi-dwarf, something very large, and prune it down and control it. But I wasn't talking about doing these spindle apples. And the reason he says to do this, and this guy's probably tried every different rootstock on the planet at large-scale production of this stuff, is because you don't want too much vigor in the tree. You want a very long-lived, easy-to-control tree in this situation. On that note, there are apple trees that you don't have to do much with at all to do this called columnar apples. That's C-O-L-U-M-N-A-R, columnar apples. These are bred specifically where you don't have to do all this stuff, but I think it would probably be more productive doing the spindle methodology. And this opens things up. This opens things up for me. I just put in that 3,200-gallon tank. I'm going to be putting raised beds all around it, cornered by four wicking beds with some arches and stuff. It's going to be really cool. I'll be revealing more about that. But these raised beds, I've already decided. i got more vegetation than I need. To need. I'm going to be doing perennials in these raised beds. And my thought is the whole backside, why not do it all with columnar apples? or spindle apples. And I think that will be a very interesting way to look at things. But that, like any fence line this could be done with, because you're running wires for a trellis to hold these trees and train these trees. It's like really tall, skinny bonsai is what you're really doing here. So I think that's something that we definitely need to look at. The spellier is another thing. Uh, when I was at the... Uh, the the what is it the Bilderberg not the Bilderberg oh god it's in Asheville the uh, it's like the largest um, private residence that has ever been built in the United States the Vanderbilt I had it was confusing conspiracy theory that's that's valid conspiracy theory with with uh, just the house the Vanderbilt estate they have amazing if you're ever near Asheville North Carolina you got to go to this place and uh, their gardens are just that's why to go more than the house itself the gardens. Are, Unbelievable. And these espalier uh, pear trees on these walls, it was like the first time I actually saw it done in, in a larger quantity and see how well it works and how much this small space can produce. So looking at those things like that, trellises as well. I mean, obviously, if you're doing spindle apples, they'll still have trellises. But I, I think the smaller the space you are, the more you should be thinking, where can a trellis go? Just look around. Everywhere that a trellis can go, use that vertical space. If you have a 12-inch strip, a one-foot-wide strip along a wall, but you put a trellis up that wall six feet, right? And let's say it's a ten-foot strip. You went from one by ten or ten square feet to 60 more square feet. You went 70 total square feet out of ten. Think about that. And if that, that trellis can go up as high as you want it to, 
and is practical for the situation. If that trellis then goes up to a pergola, however big that goes out, now you got that. And so always be looking at the vertical spaces and thinking in layers. We've talked about the seven layers of the forest system, but remember, we can drag and drop that right down. We can grow a garden that has something like sunflowers in it, and that becomes our canopy. And then we can have a vining crop like beans that go up the sunflowers, just as one example. We could just take and put sunflowers along a fence, just giant sunflowers. Great for the bees, looks really cool, gives us a yield of seeds. We can sprout the seeds. That's a whole new superfood. But then we can put a scarlet runner bean up each sunflower. And that can grow to the end of the season. The sunflower, long after the sunflower has done its deal, that stalk can just stand there and be that trellis for that bean. And it's a living trellis. So at the end of the year, we cut it down and we compost it. Right? Or we just throw it on the ground and let nature do the work. Always be thinking about trellises, layers, and vines. And then thinking about succession planting. Right now, I'm thinking, I've got some lettuce going to seed. I'm going to let it go to seed because it's going to make a buttload of seed. I'm going to scatter it through my food forest. But I'm already thinking, when that plant comes out, what's going in that spot? So a lot of places in the country, you know, I'm growing broccoli, for instance. It's about done. I can't keep up with eating it, but it's also going to seed very fast now because it's gotten very hot. So I've got a whole four-foot-by-four-foot four bed that's mostly broccoli that's about to transition into another plant. So instead of growing a crop in a space, and the smaller the space we're using, the more important this becomes, we're growing two, three, or even four or five things a season, or I should say a year, in that space. We've got a winter crop, a spring crop, a summer crop. And in between all of that, there's a main crop, and then we're thinking in those layers again. If we're going to plant corn, we might as well plant beans with the corn like the Indians did because it will grow up the corn stalks. And you've got to think that way in these small spaces. If you have trees, what's the harm in putting a bean up that tree? If we go back to those spindle apples for a minute, I don't think you're going to have any loss on yield if you put a scarlet runner bean plant up each of those spindle apples. So let's say we put in 20 spindle apples in a system, a small system, because that's only 60 feet out of three-foot spacing, and we put 20 beans up those. How much, how much are we going to get in the way of green beans and shell beans from those scarlet beans? Now, also, that scarlet bean's up there. It's got big, beautiful red flowers that bees and hummingbirds love. Now we're bringing in more wildlife and diversity into the ecosystem. We haven't taken anything from that apple tree. There is no way that apple is going to be harmed by that scarlet bean. In fact, it may very well be protected in some level of sun scald if we're in these southern hot climates, for instance. And again, we're getting all... You've got to be thinking in this layer of successive planting. And when that bean's done for the year and your apple's dormant, what can we do with that space in the winter? Maybe nothing, but maybe something. Or early spring. You know, the bane of some people's existence is weeds, like lamb's quarters. But lamb's quarters are a great early green that we don't have to do any work for. And all you got to do is, once you've got enough of it for the season, and you don't want it to get too big, you just cut it down. It all becomes mulch. That would be just one example. That's not what you should do. That's that's the I'm trying to get the thinking because remember you really do know how to do all this composting composting I, you know I said I'm not going to say 
any one of these things everybody should do. Composting is something you need to be doing. The good news is there's a million ways to do it. The easiest way to compost is chop and drop. People don't realize that's what chop and drop is. So when we prune things, when we have excess, whatever, we just cut that up in little pieces and throw it on the ground. If you want to feel better about it, pull the mulch back, put it under the mulch, throw the mulch on top of it. Go look in three days. It'll be gone. The soil organisms will consume it and put it directly into the soil. It's the easiest form of composting there is. We just did a show on black soldier fly composting. If you have a lot of waste, specifically waste that's a little more difficult to compost, you know, meat and things like that. If you're doing aquaponics, or aquatics, and it's, you're doing it really heavily, and you have an awful lot of like fish heads and stuff to get rid of, they'll do it, and they'll make and they'll keep the stink down, and they'll make amazing compost for you out of it. Worm composting, composting with chickens and, and other birds, uh, what have you. It doesn't matter, but there should be some form of composting plan. You're going to produce what we think of as waste, but one of the principles we've already covered with permaculture is produce no waste. How is it possible to produce no waste when you have things you can't use in surplus? You use the, the ethic of return of surplus. The surplus goes back to the system that produced it. And compost is the number one way to do that. Now we're building more fertility and soil is life. Next, we talked about it already, so I'm going to go quick with it. Wildlife habitat creation with the, the, the frogs. Again, how, how much... Of, a, of an aid, if you built a system like I described with toad houses, with pest control, is an army of toads worth. The nice thing is, unlike a lot of other wildlife you attract, your dogs won't kill them. I've seen dogs pick up toads, and I've seen them do it twice. Usually once, they spit it out because that nasty taste, and a second time, and that's it. They're like, nah, I ain't never doing that again. Charlie sees a toad hop, and all he sees is moving. He runs over, and up, oh, no, I know what that is. I don't want it. I have heard of people's dogs getting sick from toads, and I haven't heard one person tell me the dog died. I'm not convinced of that. Maybe there's some kind of rare toad in South Florida or something, but in general, I've seen dogs around toads my whole life, and what I see is a dog grab the toad, spit the toad out, and maybe one more time in their life pick a toad up. Uh, I guess you could have dogs trying to get high or some kind of weird dog junkie or something, but in general, I, I just want to throw it out there just to be careful. But any type of wildlife creation. Let's go back to your garden ponds again in another way. Dragonflies. I mean, put, I put that big pond in, it wasn't even a week, and I was watching dragonflies skim the water. That's another thing to bring. Water brings in birds. If we create some perches and water, then we're going to bring in lots of birds. And everybody loves to feed birds, but your most valuable birds, you want to attract with habitat because they're insectivores or highly insect-consuming. If you have birds that consume insects, you, you go a long way toward control. That pond as well, though, now, pond and compost, right? We put in a pond, let's put duckweed or salvinia or waterless or water hyacinth or some sort of surface vegetation in there that reduces our evaporation. And through, all through the summer, you're going to have to, every few weeks, take a bunch of it off. Now you're composting. We can throw that directly on the ground. We can build just compost cages. That aquatic vegetation makes some of the most beautiful compost you'll ever see. I have a friend, he has a pond in his backyard that he basically converted to a swimming pool into a pond. And he builds these cages and he plants in them. And he just keeps throwing, you know, aquatic vegetation in the cage. And it waters the plant and makes soil at the same time. 
And by the end of a season, when you open one of those up and you look at it, it is just the most beautiful soil you've ever seen. See how these start to connect back into each other. So now we have surface vegetation on a little garden pond that's taking care of our toads, that's attracting dragonflies and birds, that's making compost. And we go to the principles here in just a second. You're going to see how important that is. And then I believe that everybody should consider, again, consider some sort of an animal system. I think that you supercharge everything with animals. And your, your animals to look at quail, chickens, rabbit, pigeons, fish, worms for these small systems. If you want to do something else and you can, that's great. If you can do it, I think the single most valuable critter to put into a small-scale system like we're talking about today is the chicken. And probably the most friendly, you know, kind of least destructive, quietest, cute little get-along-with-the-kids-even critter is the bantam hen. The bantam hen, you're going to get small eggs instead of big eggs, but they just don't cause anywhere near as much trouble. They don't tear shit apart like larger chickens do. They're just so agreeable to be around. The three that I have have stopped really laying many eggs. They haven't laid an egg for me in like two weeks. I think I got one chicken egg in the last two weeks. And they're almost like pets. I keep them around, though, because I have a compost pit. They, they work because the, the ducks don't work the compost for nothing. They work the compost pit. They follow me around. I can pick them up and throw them on my shoulder. When they see my granddaughter, they think she's interesting. They don't try to attack her. So the chicken, the reason I say the chicken is that it will give you the most for the least. It'll process compost. It'll eat bugs. It'll make waste that goes into the compost in the form of manure. It's relatively quiet. It'll give you eggs. And when it's finished giving you eggs and you don't want it as a pet, it's a reasonable small meal. So it does so much. There are places you can't have them. Then I would look to quail. And I would look, if you can, to tractoring quail. And if you can't do that, then you stack quail. Quail produce a lot of waste, a lot of compost, process, a lot of uh, vegetation for you as well, not as good as chickens. And then I would also look to rabbits. And the reason I would look to rabbits is I think it's almost worth having a rabbit or two as a pet just for the rabbit manure if you don't have another animal in your system. Because it's just so powerful to have some form of animal manure. Rabbit manure is what's called a cool manure which means we can just take rabbit manure and just put it in the garden. And if we have a way that we're collecting rabbit manure and we're doing that into a worm bin, it's unbelievable what that produces for us. And it's a way to get rid of excess. Right now, I'm like, I have so much excess red amaranth that I'm just throwing it in the compost. Like, I, I, I wish I had rabbits to give it to. The ducks, I don't know what it is. The ducks really don't like it. The chickens eat it a little bit, but they're like, you know what, we've had enough, man. We're done. So by having something like a, a, like a rabbit is basically a little ruminant. I don't think rabbits are actually ruminants, but they function like a ruminant, which is like a cow, and that they eat that type of vegetation, and they're very happy to do so. If you have you know wild uh, lamb's quarter coming, rabbits love lamb's quarter. Just love it. Love uh, amaranth. You know, you can, you can feed rabbits with a bag mower. You mow a little strip and give them the grass clippings and they're happy. Grow white clover in there and some ryegrass and your rabbits are just content. So they make a lot of sense. Uh, pigeons, I have not done yet myself. I think the power of pigeons is if you grow pigeons in dovecoats, assuming you can where you are, 
They're going to go do a lot of foraging elsewhere. They're going to produce squabs. They're going to produce eggs. They're going to kind of manage themselves. You feed them enough to keep them interested and, and house them, and they take care of themselves. So I wanted to throw that in there, though I have not yet done it. And it could cross problems with neighbors. So you have to think about that social design consideration. And then worms. I look at worms as a form of livestock because they consume excess production. We take, you know, if I had a worm bin, I could be throwing some of that amaranth in there right now. They'll be happy to eat it. They make casting. So some sort of animal in the system, I think, makes sense. Again, everyone should consider it. Not everybody should do it. Let's talk about permaculture principles. I try in all these shows to give you some permaculture principles. Today you get seven, and we'll talk about how they all work together. Principle one for small space design today, do the least work for the highest return. Again, systems like wicking beds are far more work initially than putting an in-ground garden in, but they're less work forever. And all I do with my wicking beds to get them to be better every year is take compost and put compost in them and add new layers of mulch. I do run my entire fertility program, but it becomes less and less necessary as time goes on. You can build and improve soil in a container just like you can on bare land. So that is one example of that. If we go into a system where we put something in like a spindle apple tree system, we don't have to do a lot of work on those apples once they're established. It's, it's, there's some training into about three years, and then it's like pruning like you know a little bit here and a little bit there, and that tree is going to produce for us over and over and over again. If we put drip irrigation in there, put that on a timer, we don't have to do a lot. Now what we have to do is decide, well, what do we want to grow in that space? The apples kind of take care of themselves. If we get systems to the point where they're starting to regenerate and progenerate themselves, then we don't have to plant as much. Because, you know, I don't plant lettuce anymore because lettuce just shows up, that type of thing. And this type of thing happens. One of Bill Mollison's early writings, he talks about parsley. Like, one of the first things he wants to do is get parsley thick into a system until it's a weed. So you, you grow a shitload of parsley in the first two years. This is a biannual. And when it goes to seed in its second year, you let it go to seed, and then you just scatter it everywhere. And once you've done that for a couple seasons, you will always have parsley. Now that's just it's just an herb that grows here, the way plantain does most places. You just it's the, I need parsley. Oh, there's some parsley, and let some of it go to seed every year, and you have it forever. That's another way to look at the least work for the highest return. We put in a garden pond and we create toad habitat. Now the toads are doing the work of pest control for us. They are progenerating. They are doing that work. They're friendly little critters. They don't cause any problems. You know, it's not like birds that are not up shitting on your porch or something like that, right? So that principle is very important. And to get that to happen, everything should serve multiple functions. Everything should serve multiple functions. The chicken is not just for eggs. The chicken produces manure. That is a fertility aid. And it produces eggs. That is an output that we can find beneficial. But it also takes waste and processes it into compost. That is a third function. It's, I also think they're quite entertaining. That is a fourth function. We probably could come up with ten things the chicken does. Now how do we connect those things to other systems? We put in a trellis. The trellis supports plants. That is a function. But by its very nature, 
one side of that trellis is going to be shaded in the morning and one in the afternoon, depending on the climate and the orientation. So now it's providing shade. It's also providing a visual feature in the landscape. So if we do it the right way, it adds beauty to the landscape. Or it blocks a view that we don't want to see. Everything we put in should serve multiple functions. We put in the garden pond. The garden pond is a function of beauty. It's also a function of collecting water. If we put micro-earthworks in with it, when the pond overflows, it's now a nutrient source. If we put surface vegetation on it, it's a, a source of compostable material. If we put the right surface vegetation on it, it can actually help feed the fish that are in the pond. You start to see that everything does serve multiple functions, but we have to determine what they are and be smart about their placement. The next is the problem is the solution. This is one we've talked about before, but it's so important with small designscapes because it is the guiding principle from the beginning. The problem is I don't have that much space. We already talked about all the advantages that gives you. So the small space is the solution because we're going to be smart about our design. It's going to be easy to manage, easy to control, incredibly highly productive. We can actually understand and completely control the whole thing from one end to the other. But we can take that further. We move into urban landscapes. We have other problems. Sometimes the problem is the department of making you sad. That is the government. The government says you cannot have a chicken. So what will provide you what you're looking for? If it's meat and eggs, we can use quail. Quail are just a pet. And immediately we start to understand that whatever restriction we have, we start to bend it to our will to give us what we're looking for. Right? The problem is it rains too much. Let's put in a rain garden. That will extend during the dry season the effect of the rain, and it will deal with the fact that there's too much mud. Right? The problem is it's too hot. Well, let's grow things that grow in hot climates. The problem is it's cold. Well, then let's grow things that grow in cold climates. You know, you can almost always, if you're elegant with your design decisions, harness the problem into what the solution should be. Sometimes the problem is the solution, and sometimes the problem shows you the solution. It points to the solution. It's up to you to figure that out. The next is everybody talks about polyculture and diversity, and we want just as much diversity as we want. And the purple breathers in permaculture, the social justice types, the diversity is good, and we should always have diversity, 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 diversity. Let's virtue signal our diversity, you know. Um, diversity has strengths and weaknesses, but diversity is only as powerful as the interconnections it creates. We can put two things together, and now we're more diverse, but what if those two things don't get along well? What if we put in two plants and one is allopathic and one is extremely sensitive to the allopathy of the other? Allopathic means that plant has certain things it does that prevents other plants from growing. So a lot of times we can get around that to a large degree, but just diversity of in itself. We need to think about the reason for the diversity. And sometimes that is just planting the shit out of a ton of stuff and observing and then finding the relationships and finding the niche. Because... You'll find, like, well, people will say, this plant doesn't grow here, but I have it growing crazy here. But then you go look at it, well, it is growing crazy here in this one little spot. And even though it seems like it's taking over, like, I can see where it stops. It's found its niche. Right? So that product is a diversity component to the entire system, but it's also found its niche. So now we want to kind of guild around it to, like, maintain it in that niche. And what does that plant attract? 
Or what does that plant repel? So when we're thinking about diversity, we don't want to do diversity for the sake of diversity. We want to do the diversity for the strength of interconnection that it creates. Next, this principle is so important on small escapes because for people forget about it. Slow, spread, and soak water, and hence nutrient. When we look at how water behaves on a property, and some people say, well, I have no, I have no real need for, for any type of earthworks because it's pretty flat. And when it rains, it's just everything's wet. Yeah, but we can spread. You, you're gonna, like this big puddle. What if it's, so now the problem's the solution? I got a big wet spot. Well, if we use micro earthworks and we spread that water across the property instead of letting it come to one spot and condense, then we actually mitigate that standing water issue. Slowing, spreading, and soaking is always the way to go with water. And I've had people say to me, but if I put swales on my property, they'll fill up with water and stay full. That's how wet it is. Well, then don't do that. Then use berms or use paths. They don't have to be deep. But let's spread. If we spread and slow water flow, we reduce erosion. When we reduce erosion, we start building soil. When we spread, we move nutrient. Instead of having nutrient concentrated and lacking, we have nutrient evenly distributed through the property. One of the reasons, and they are big swales, but my three-quarter acre food forest, it's gone insane. I got plants growing there. I'm like, where the hell did this come? I got cosmos. Cosmos flowers. Like the people plant their gardens. I got them growing three foot high, big, beautiful, large flowers. I didn't plant them. I don't know any neighbors that have them. Somewhere some seed got here and they just grew. There's people trying to get them to grow. Down the road probably. In a perfect little garden, won't grow because the nutrients spread. Slow soak water, spread water, and then we spread nutrient. Again, we talked about this principle in the very beginning, but I got to bring it back to you at the end. Humans are native to Earth's ecological systems. We have to stop thinking that we need to get out into the wild to be able to do this stuff, or we need a thousand acres to do this stuff. We can make the world a better place if people start producing some of their own food, and we need everybody doing it, as I say, from backyards to broad acres and everything in between. And the only way we're going to do that is to start to realize that we are natural components to the planet. We belong here as much as the deer. We belong here as much as the butterfly and the fish, the dog, the cat, the horse, the lion, the wildebeest, the mountain lion. The raccoon. We are as native to this planet as everything else that lives here. And if we start acting like it, we can create these pockets of horticultural wilderness throughout the suburbs, throughout the urban landscape, certainly throughout the urban rural fringe, certainly throughout rural America. The last one, we've alluded to this all the way through, but this is so freaking important. Water is life. You've heard people say that over and over and over again. Water is life, but so is soil. And completing the principle, if soil isn't lost, it's being built. Everybody wants to talk about building soil as though it's so, so, so complicated. All you have to do to start building soil is stop losing it. One of the, actually, by the ton, and it's not intentional, 
But if we measure it by the ton, the number one thing exported from the United States every year is topsoil. It blows away in the wind. It flows down our rivers into the ocean. It erodes, washes away. There is nothing the United States sends more off of its land, off of its, out of its borders every year by the ton than soil. That's why we have the problems we did. Because if you're losing soil, you're not building soil. But if you are stopping the loss, soil builds itself. We can aid it, and we should. We can make it go faster. We can use mulch, and we can use compost and animal systems. We can use uh, holistic grazing techniques. There's so many ways we can accelerate it. But if you stop it from going away, it'll build itself. You don't believe me? Okay. What happens when somebody gets a pickup truck, it breaks down, and they give up on it, and they leave it sit? What always happens within a few years? And if it doesn't move and no one does anything with it? You go look at You know what happens, right? You go and you look, and there's shit growing in the back of the pickup truck. There's like freaking grass and trees and bushes and shit growing in the back of the truck. Why? Because it's a box. And in general, when stuff falls in that box, it can't get out. That happens in rain gutters, for God's sakes. Actually, really fast because the asphalt becomes soil as it wears away from shingles. And you got that water flow dragging a bigger surface area into there. But a pickup truck. Everybody who ain't lived under a rock their whole life has seen some abandoned car or truck with shit growing out of it. How did that happen? Dust. Dust comes out of the air. And since it lands in there and can't get out, over time it builds up. As it rains, based on the angle that it's parked, it starts to accumulate in, let's say, one corner. A seed eventually falls in there, it grows, it falls to the ground, it composts, and another, and another, and another. And you, you've, you've probably, if you go to a junkyard, you might see it looks like the damn truck's like starting to, the springs are getting weak on it because there's so much in the back of it. Because it's not losing soil, therefore it's growing soil. So if we look at our landscape on our property, and we set up with micro-earthworks, things like miniature gabions, retaining walls, mulch, etc., a system where when it rains, soil doesn't leave our property, we'll start to grow and increase and produce and build soil. That's why you can go to places that have been abandoned and see trees growing on the top of buildings. I'm talking like there's places in Chicago, four-story, five-story buildings, concrete roof, tree growing on the roof, Roots coming down through the building, eating the concrete. Because it's that, that roof is flat, and it's got a ledge. <laughs> it builds soil. That's how you have to start thinking about your property. How do I prevent... The first thing, how do I prevent soil from leaving? Then, stop exporting material. Don't send your leaves away to the dump. Get your neighbor's leaves and bring them to your house. You build soil, you build diversity, you build life, you get to a point where your small property can grow more food than you can eat. You start not knowing what to do with it, so you start sharing it. And you start storing it for when it's not growing. And that's probably what we're going to talk about next in this series, is developing the systems to take the surplus and not only to use it now, 
but to make it get you through the gaps in seasonality. That's probably where we're going to go next. Can't swear to it, but it's probably where we're going to go. With that, we have wrapped this show up. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show and enjoyed the series overall. Remember, the way you can help support this show, the best way is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. I just brought on three really great new vendors for discounts to the MSB. You want to join, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. Next up, the other way you can support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, before you buy stuff online, you help support us no matter what you eventually buy. And I have all kinds of products reviewed for you. There are in categories that are alphabetical. Everything on tspaz.com. If it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it, and I would spend my money on it again, or I wouldn't recommend it. I have a lot of things there that are products I really think you need. I think there's a lot of products that are really, really useful and you really should consider. I think there's a lot of products there that you're going to buy something like it anyway, and I found the best. You know, you're going to have a cook. You're going to have a way that you're going to cook your food, for instance. So you might as well use the best. When you're up for another product, you might as well get the one that I've already tested out. Um, today is not something you need. There is nobody that needs this product. Uh, a lot of you probably won't want it, <laughs> but some of you will. And it's a f every once in a while I like to put something out that's fun. You know, I've done the, the the bacon rim shot for making bloody marys and the the, the fly the fly gun for shooting flies, the bug assault fly gun. Right? Today's is uh, one that I'm sure some people are going to be like, "Do you really need that?" I, no, you don't. I just said so. Uh, it is made by a company called Binoctales. Uh, which was the people that very first people that made the binoculars where you could smuggle booze into like a baseball game with a pair of binoculars around your neck and they're actually a flask. Except everybody knows that now and they really don't look like real binoculars uh, and they don't work as binoculars. Um, this is a brush that's actually a six ounce flash and it looks like one of the big kind of, you know, knobby brushes. The kind of brush I recommend for a dog, by the way. You get cheap brushes, use them on your dog better than most dog brushes other than a Furminator. Uh, and then there's a little thing on the end of the handle screws off, and it's a flask. Hold six ounces of your favorite adult beverage, or water if you wanted it to. Um, I'll tell you, there's, there, there's like I said, there's going to be a group of people like, you really need to have a drink wherever you go. No, but there's places where I might want to. And why don't you go back to Prohibition, go back to 1924 or something, and leave us alone. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that there are certain times I get roped into doing some shit that I really don't want to, and, and being able to have a drink makes it a lot more enjoyable. And, and generally, it's like kids parties at some place with like a hundred kids running around screaming and yelling and lights blinking, and you know the place doesn't have the decency to let you have a beer. Yeah, being able to have a rum and coke there. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Or uh, you know, a couple of years ago we went to a Jimmy Buffett concert and. They had $18 crappy margaritas, but you know what? When you drop two ounces of good gold tequila in there, all of a sudden that margarita was worth having. Uh, still too expensive, but worth having. Uh, so, And then you could split one between two people, and basically they were $9 a piece, like that. Uh, and this is something like either you're going to want it or you're not going to want it. So I just thought I'd bring it out. Now, I'll tell you why I picked it. When somebody put this. It was actually my buddy named JR. I forgot who it was when I wrote it up this morning. He shared it with me on Facebook. I'm like, that's kind of cool. I looked up on Amazon. There's all kinds of crap. I found, like, fake umbrellas, fake cell phone chargers, body lotion bottles, binoculars, all that stuff. And the thing was, like, the umbrella, it ain't actually an umbrella. So it kind of... Tell what it is. And the cell phone charger looks fake. There's a fake cell phone. It looks fake. This looks like a brush because it's a brush. It actually is a brush. It even has a mirror on the back. So you actually use it multifunction. Function stacking, right? And then, you know, when I got it, it's well built. 
It's a, it's a good quality brush with a flask inside it, and it doesn't leak. So I just thought it would be fun to have something a little different today. Check it out, the uh, Binoctales Brush Secret Flask, because we can't always be serious every day, and I thought it would be a good fun thing to throw in the mix. That brings us to our song of the day today. The song of the day today is by a band called All Time Low. Don't really know them. Uh, this is why I have John Adam do my music for me, because I get exposed and I expose you guys to things that I wouldn't. Uh, the song is called Somewhere in Neverland. And, of course, this song is uh, part of this week is called Fairy Tale Week. All of the songs uh, this week come from the concept of different fairy tales. And, of course, Somewhere in Neverland would be Peter Pan. Um, this song is about exactly that kind of thing, too. This is uh, you know, kind of leaving school and going on to the real world, buy to classes and hello to taxes, and wanting to stay a kid, wanting to stay this carefree kid, and he's at the point where he says, come on, Wendy, and fly away with me, right? And, and basically wanting to hold on to that, that special time when we are kids and we don't have to be so concerned with everything. You know, to me, though, I don't want to go back and be 17, 18 again. My wife and I were just actually talking about this. Like, if you could go back to being that young, we're like, hell no. The only advantage to me to be able to go back to that young would be to extend my life. You know, if I'm going to live to be 90 and I went back 20 years, I'd have 20 more years until I was 90, that type of thing. I, I'd rather put 20 years more on the end of it because I, I, I am so happy with what I have now. And honestly, with this permaculture series, this is what we've been talking about, is building the quality into your life so that you're not nostalgic for things that weren't as good as you thought they were. It sounds great, live forever, be a kid forever, whatever, but think about all the things you couldn't do when you were a kid. Think about all the things you didn't know when you were a kid. Think about the struggles that you had when you were really a young person, or if you're young right now, the struggles you're having. And realize that we all wax for something different. We all want to go, when, we, when we're young, we want to be older. When we're old, we want to be younger. When we're healthy, we want to be healthier than we are. When we get older and we get sick, we wish we were as healthy as when we weren't happy. Women are really, men are too, but women are really bad about, they're not happy with their weight, you know, but 10 years later, they're not happy with their weight and they wish they were the weight they were 10 years ago because they put five pounds on or something. I mean, like, there's a point where you got to be happy with where you are and where you're at. And if you're not, instead of trying to go somewhere else, why don't you create the life you want? where you are. That's a big part of permaculture design. It's a big part of the modern survival lifestyle. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.